But often there is a processing fee imposed by a company that does make it prohibitive to make small investments. And that's a company's way of regulating their market to some degree. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us, and he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, In addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. Uh, When we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record. But we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals and People who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've the deal you've got and assuming it checks out he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal so debt equity and potentially loan guarantors Uh, all you need well you need to find a deal obviously um but besides that you know the other main components of the deal they can help you out with so talk to mark belsky his email is m-b-e-l-s-k-y at easterneq.com and his phone number 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how are you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And first off, I hope you're having a best ever weekend because today is Sunday. We got a special segment called Skill Set Sunday. By the end of this conversation, I'm betting that you're going to have acquired a new skill or honed an existing skill that you've got even better. And that skill is the skill of learning about a marketplace that perhaps you didn't know existed. With us today, we're talking to Dave Dumford. He's a managing director at Zimbato, which is an SEC registered trading platform. How are you doing, Dave? Hey, Joe. Doing very well. How are you doing? I am doing well as well, and nice to have you on the show. A little bit more about Dave. He helps registered professional investors and sellers come find 
counterparties and trade institutional size blocks of private securities. He's going to make that all English here in a little bit. That might sound a little confusing, but basically, well, you know what? I'm not going to steal his thunder. He's going to tell us what he does. Before Zambato, he was an Olympic swimmer. There's a fun fact. And he's based in San Francisco, California. So with that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Absolutely. And first off, it's great to be on the show. And I'm very appreciative to have the opportunity to discuss this with your listeners, because I think some of what I say might resonate, even though it's in a completely different segment of a different market. But so Zambato, I think you said it, we are a trading platform for private company securities. And we do work on the larger end of the spectrum. So we're talking about tens of millions of dollar sized blocks of private companies that sellers come to us to try and sell. And we have investors on the other side trying to purchase interests in private companies. And I'm happy to go into a bit of a background as to sort of how this market has emerged and why it's growing, if that would be helpful. Yes, please do. Absolutely. So this is a relatively new phenomenon, having an active trading market in private companies. Because historically, when a company got large enough, such that it was eliciting a lot of investor interest, where sellers had large enough blocks, where they were really actively looking for liquidity, the company would already be public. That's really been largely historically a function of public markets here in the U.S., But around about 1997, which is when the number of public companies in the U.S. peaked, things started to turn. And it's hard to pinpoint one thing in particular, but a lot of it was to do with regulation. So a lot of the regulation that was being imposed on public companies was actually increasing the liability and making it more onerous for executives of public companies. Therefore, swinging the pendulum a little bit from running a private company and the benefits versus risks there and being a public company. All the while, a lot of the regulation that was being pushed was leading to the reduction in the amount of money that banks could make trading stocks in public markets. So bankers who would traditionally make a lot of money transacting because of the advent of computers and the introduction of decimalization of share prices and therefore the inability for bankers to make as much money brokering and trading stocks, which from some perspectives, that's a good thing. But from one very important perspective for this conversation, what it did was it reduced the ability for banks to invest in a lot of the services which make public companies more liquid. So a lot of the sales, a lot of research, a lot of the investment they make themselves in public companies. And what that led to was lower liquidity in especially the smaller, less known public companies. And therefore, the benefit of being public started to reduce dramatically and the downsides of being public started to increase. And therefore, it's led up to this point in private companies wanting to stay private longer and longer, where private markets continue to grow. Investors start now moving into private markets and looking at private markets when they wouldn't have historically. And so what we've seen is private companies staying private longer and longer and getting larger and larger in private markets. And therefore, the need for infrastructure to support transacting private markets when historically it wouldn't have been necessary. So this is for 
the not exclusively, but this really helps the administrative assistant at a private company like Uber or another company like that who is making maybe 50000 a year but on paper is a multimillionaire because they got in the company early on. So he or she has the ability through your platform to sell some of the shares that they own in their private company, in this example, Uber, and cash in on some of that so that they can actually realize some of those ownership shares versus just being a on-paper millionaire. Is that accurate? Sure. That's, that's definitely a part of the market right now. It's employees that have worked at these companies for a number of years, been early on, been underpaid, but have been compensated a lot in equity. And they've been there a number of years and are looking to move on in their lives, buy a house, make some sort of other investment. They just don't have the cash. They have all this equity. So they need a way to get some liquidity. And it just doesn't look like their company is going to be public anytime soon or be acquired anytime soon. So that's definitely a huge important part of all of this. And then another interesting part of this is the venture capital firms that invested in these companies. So traditionally, the way the venture capital model is set up is these funds have a 10-year time frame, which used to work really well. Back about 20 years ago, the average time for a company from its first funding round to IPO was around five years. So when you're operating with a 10-year fund, that's a great time frame. You invest in the early years of the fund, and then the latter years of the fund, you're harvesting, you're getting your money back. Now, the average time from a company's first round of financing to IPO is around the 10, 11-year mark. So it doesn't work so well for the typical venture capital model where they've invested, and by the time the fund is expiring, their liquidity is nowhere in sight. So now they're starting to have to look at other alternatives for getting money back to their end investors that obviously invested in the hopes of getting a return at some point in the future. Before we started recording, I asked you, which I shouldn't have because I should always leave the questions for during the recording. So that was a rookie mistake on my part. But we'll reenact what I asked you before. I'd asked you before we started recording if you only work with accredited investors. And you said what? I said, so this market is only really accessible for accredited investors. We've actually set our criteria a little bit stricter than that. And we only really work with qualified purchasers. So that's the $5 million threshold rather than the $1 million threshold. And that's just more a symptom of our focus in this market. It's more on the larger end of the spectrum. We're serving a lot of the institutions that require our services. And then obviously wealthy individuals can fall into that category. However, it is a very interesting market, even at the accredited investor level. We're just not, as a company, as focused on that. Qualified purchasers. I didn't know that term existed, and that's my ignorance for having a background in advertising agencies and kind of learning real estate through what I'm doing, also the podcast. So just curious, is there another level up of a group of individuals above qualified purchasers? From a regulatory perspective... It's not as meaningful, but from a sort of categorization perspective, you get into the high net worth and then ultra high net worth. And I think there are different definitions of that, but then you're looking in the vast quantities of money. Got it. I always thought high net worth was accredited for how it's defined 
maybe more officially, what's high net worth defined as? I don't have an exact number, but I think you're looking in the tens of Okay. So how do you make money? We'll start with that. So we operate under an exchange model. So we have a platform called ZX and we collect buy and sell orders on private company shares. And we operate on an agency basis. So we collect a transaction fee for any successfully completed transaction. So a buyer will come in with a price and size in mind and same thing on the sell side. And if that transaction is possible, we'll facilitate it and we'll facilitate the execution and then be paid from either side a transaction fee for completing the transaction. You mentioned earlier that if an individual has ownership equity in a private company that doesn't look like they'll be being sold anytime soon, then they might want to liquidate and sell via this marketplace. So I get that standpoint from their perspective for why they're selling. But why would anyone want to buy equity in a company if it doesn't look like it's going to be sold anytime soon? That's a really interesting question and a really important question for this market. So I can actually use an example to illustrate this point. Historically, to receive basically appreciation or achieve the appreciation in a company stock, an average wealthy investor could have just waited to the IPO, got in at the IPO, and there was a good probability that you can receive really meaningful outsized returns in the public markets. And that's becoming increasingly less likely. So to really achieve huge outsized returns, a lot of wealthy investors or institutions are really being forced to look at private companies before they've got to such a large scale as a private company that by the time they go out an IPO, it really is too late to receive the sort of double, triple, quadruple digit returns. So the example that I give here is, If you look at a company like Amazon, in 1997 when it IPO'd, it was just over $438 million of value. Looking at it right now, it's at the sort of eight, $900 billion valuation mark. So as an investor who had invested purely in the public markets at the IPO, you've received a 2,000 times return on that investment. Sort of fast forward a decade and a half to when Facebook went public, At the time Facebook was going public, it was already a $100 billion company. So now, even if you invest in that IPO, you've done fantastically well, but it's not even in the same ballpark of what it would have been like for a comparable company in sort of the last generation. Facebook, $100 billion company is now 600, so you've 6x, that's a great return, but it's not even comparable. So if you look at a lot of big private companies now, they've already got very healthy valuations. So... That's not to say that they won't continue to grow as public companies, but the scale or the multiples at which they can grow at are a lot more limited. The two target audiences that are most valuable to you, and I'm guessing based on what you've told me, but please clarify if this isn't accurate, is one, qualified purchasers. So people who have $5 million net worth, I'm guessing that's not including primary residents, just like it is accredited. And then also on the flip side, people who have equity ownership in private companies. Are those your two primary audiences? They are, along with the institutions that participate in this space. So the venture funds, the hedge funds, the sort of bigger investors that would have 
large positions by virtue of have investing early or the ones that are looking to sort of come in at a later stage and purchase some of these shares. So how do you focus your time between those three groups? That's a great question. I'd say more company specific. So particular companies, you see different sort of trends in trading activity. But it's more if you have the ability to participate, if you have actively participated, obviously you're on one side of the spectrum. And then if you're just looking to get involved in this space, what I'd say is obviously there's a lot to learn. Securities are risky securities. That's part of the reason why we're cautious going sort of down to the accredited investor level is for people participating in this space, investing in private companies. We just want to be very sure that it's a suitable thing for that person to do. And in some cases it is, but we obviously like to operate with sort of the utmost caution in that regard. Because it's higher risk, but higher potential return, right? Exactly. There are risks, obvious ones like an illiquidity risk, but then other sort of less obvious ones. For example, information is less available in private companies than public companies. So often you just don't know what you don't know. So they're just risks that people need to be aware of when choosing to invest in these private companies. And obviously it's really important to understand that before taking the plunge. Anything else as it relates to what you do in your company that we haven't talked about that you think we should? I think we've covered a good portion. As long as you think it's clear sort of the reason why this market exists, the reason why we think it will continue to grow, I think I can elaborate on. We think it'll continue to grow because a lot of the regulatory trends Mm -hmm. that have caused this market to be where it is right now, we don't see being rolled back. We think that it makes sense where the market is right now for private companies to raise a ton of capital in the private markets and stay private as long as possible. And we really think that what we're doing is important because any mature securities market really does have a lot of infrastructure to standardize processes for transacting on a secondary market. And us, the private company securities market doesn't really have that much in place. And that's really what we're trying to achieve is set up some of the infrastructure that exists in other markets to make this market as orderly as possible. What's the minimum investment? We don't have a minimum investment. $5? (laughs) One thing I'd mention is the transfer process for companies varies from company to company. But often there is a processing fee imposed by a company that does make it prohibitive to make small investments. And that's a company's way of regulating their market to some degree. For example, some companies will say, we'll help you transfer shares, but the the transfer fee is $5,000. So obviously, if you're investing $10,000, it might be prohibitive. So you're looking at sort of the $100,000 plus threshold. For us, really, the vast majority of our transactions are in the millions. What would you say the average is, if you had to guess? Average block size is in the sort of 4 million range. 4 million range. And this is with a qualified purchaser who has a $5 million net worth or above. And this is in a private company that they're investing in, where you said the information tends to be less available than a public. Makes sense. So what type of questions do they ask prior to plunking down 4 million bucks into this? 
Well, the reason why that number is high is a lot of purchases being made through institutional um, is institutional. So they do have existing information on the company by virtue of already being a holder or having invested in a venture fund and having exposure to that company, therefore having enough information to have an opinion on a company. And then some of the larger companies do start selectively disclosing some of their key metrics publicly. So it's not the sort of disclosure that's required in public markets, for example, full audited financial statements, but it's enough to really help people form an opinion. And I think a lot of investors, the reason they come in and invest in some of these companies is to get exposure to certain spaces that they believe in is impossible if you're trying to invest in public markets. For example, ride-sharing right now. There isn't a public ride-sharing company, but if you're really bullish on the space and you think one company in particular is dominating and will continue to dominate, then you have to really look at how you would invest through a private company. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you or learn more about your company? Where should they go? Go to our website, zambada.com, and there should be a contact us button. And please do put in the comment section that you heard about us through your podcast. I would just add to that, that even if you're at the accredited investor level and are curious, more than happy to answer questions, my team can help refer you to resources that would be helpful beyond this podcast. Yeah. And I know firsthand making the first million is much harder than making the next million. So accredited investors who are listening, I'm sure you would agree that your first million was pretty darn challenging. And if you're in between one and five, you're likely going to be trending towards five. So you're probably going to be in the qualified purchaser category if you're not in there already. So I'm sure there's a lot of qualified purchasers or almost qualified purchasers who are listening to the podcast and probably didn't know they were categorized as a qualified purchaser like myself. I had no idea that category exists, but that's just my ignorance. And that's why I do this podcast so I can be educated by people like you. Thank you so much, Dave, for being on the show and talking about this marketplace. It's not real estate specific, but real estate deals with money and investors, and you are dealing with money and investors, and you're dealing with a lot of money and people who have 5 million plus net worth. And it's important and necessary for us to know what they're looking at, what other options they have, so that we can then be more educated when we speak to them about what we're offering. So thank you so much for being on the show, Dave. Hope you have a best ever weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbelsky at Eastern. EQ.com. Do you buy property worth over a million dollars? And are you missing huge income tax benefits? Cost segregation is one of the methods I use myself to lower taxes on our properties and increase the cash flow. Call Yona Wise with Madison Specs at 732 333 1477.